It's the first day of November, and many of us awoke to a couple of inches of snow. Whatever happened to that El Nino effect of no snow, no cold weather? Come on, El Nino, bring it. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Courtney Astolfi. Let's get going. The plot by Ohio's elected Republican leaders to undermine the value of our vote and block majority rule on abortion was one of the most sinister moves ever in this state, and voters turned out in big numbers in August to kill it. But that special election came at a steep cost that appears to keep climbing, Lisa. How much did Secretary of State Frank LaRose and Senate President Matt Huffman cost us with their cynical ploy? Well, it looks like it's going to cost more than initially estimated. The Ohio Controlling Board has set aside $2 million additional dollars to cover the August special election. So that brings the total earmarks for this election to $18 million so far. They've spent almost all of that. $17.5 million has already been spent. But Controlling Board member Bride Rose Sweeney, the Democrat from Westlake, says the initial cost estimate from the Secretary of State was 10 to $12 million before the election. And then the Senate ended up setting aside $15 million for the election. LaRose's fiscal officer, Leslie Pyatt, says the new amount is because it, after counties submitted their final election bills, they found that there was higher than expected voter turnout. Thank goodness. Uh, there was also some increased salaries uh, at county elections boards, increased poll worker pay. They hired a lot of temporary workers for this election. So they say that that's probably why they need this $2 million extra dollars. Yeah. You know, part of the the role as a leader is to be a good steward of the tax money. And when you think about the number of millions of dollars they squandered on this really bad thing, they should never have done it. They had already outlawed August elections and everything about it was bad news. You know, we could have used that money for so many other good things and it's just gone for, for pointless power. You know, Matt Huffman famous for telling the dispatch, we can do anything we want. And that was what was in their mind. They shouldn't do what they want. They should do what the voters want and they should save us the money. Shame on them for this wasteful spending. Yes. You don't yes. want to fight about it? Shame, shame, shame. Just like Cersei in the Game of Thrones. Okay. <laughs> Walking I, naked through the street. Shame, shame. I mean, yeah, you could spend a lot of that on childcare. That's always my pet pet project. Childcare. Amen. Uh, you know, upgrading the unemployment system so that it doesn't stick it to people. There's any number of things you could do with that money and they waste it. Like they don't think of it as their money and they should think they should be spending it very, very carefully instead of wasting it in their political nonsense. Party over, people. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We were all excited not that long ago by the prospect of a towering, enormous mural overlooking downtown Cleveland. Laura, why is that no longer happening? Well, because there are a bunch of delays, and now the artist isn't available. This is internationally renowned artist Julie Moretu. She was supposed to paint this soaring abstract mural on the 21-story Standard Building that overlooks Public Square downtown. It's behind the old stone church. If you ever like take a look, it's a completely blank wall, and they built it that way as a firewall. They expected something to be built right next to it almost immediately, but it's been sitting there for decades, and they converted it from offices to residential and the front triennial was going to have this amazing piece of art that would really set up the skyline. But because of the sale, it got delayed and 
now she can't do it. So unfortunately, they're, they're looking at some future projects, but not with her and not in that building. I was a little bit surprised that she was walking away that easily because this would be a signature spot. Everybody would know your name because it's so big. I mean, we ran the picture online and in the Plain Dealer today, so people get a load of it. I mean, this this would be probably second only to the whales along Lake Erie in terms of size. Uh, they do think they'll look for another artist eventually, right? The new owner who we don't know who it is. Correct. And that sale just closed, I believe, yesterday. So they'll probably get their their ducks in a row there. There are some quotes in here that were kind of, you know, very arty. And they were saying the inspiration, you know, you have to strike while the iron's hot and, and artists have to be inspired and the delay didn't work with her. So there wasn't anything really concrete, like we had this deadline or whatever. It's just that she can't do it because she has a lot of other projects and she's internationally renowned. So it's unfortunate. But I mean, Front is planning new murals up to five artists for 2025. There's no announcements on that, but those are going to be across the city. But you're right. This was a big deal when they announced it in March 2022. And now it's a disappointment. On the other hand, there's no moment more magical than when you begin with a blank canvas or a blank page, right? That the possibilities are endless before you start. So we remain with endless possibilities. <laughs> what an optimistic take. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. Sunday is one of the Saturdays in the calendar year, the day when we turn the clocks back and bring nightfall an hour earlier, even as the days grow shorter. Courtney, we're about to have a fight on this, I think, based on the conversation we had before this podcast began, but is there any movement with our lawmakers to be done with this awful annual moment? Well, lawmakers in Ohio's house are definitely interested in this debate. They aren't actually doing anything about it, but they are making a strong statement. And, and they are responding to Congress, which 56 years ago banned states from permanently adopting daylight savings time. So this House committee on Tuesday responded to that by passing, with bipartisan support, a resolution, which has no actual teeth, but it's a statement, that resolution is urging the federal government to make daylight savings permanent. The state lawmakers say that switching the clocks back in fall cuts into daylight hours, worsens road safety, and increases crime. And Ohio is one of 19 states now that have passed legislation or resolutions since 2018 advocating for a permanent daylight savings time. We talked to Representative Rodney Creech. He's from West Alexandria. He's a Republican, and he's a big backer of this resolution. He says this is a big deal, and it's important to his constituents here. The funniest thing he mm -hmm. said is, I'm not here to represent Creech. I'm here to represent my constituents. Wouldn't it be nice if Matt Huffman and the rest of the people in the legislature <laughs> thought the same way, but they don't? Uh, the, the, what threw me in this was the line that said, I don't care if it's daylight savings time or standard time and that some people are arguing for standard time because it's God's way. It's like, I don't remember anything in which God set the clock or even <laughs> said that it's a 24 hour day. We base this stuff on planets and things. But I, I, I know, Lisa, because of what you said before, you disagree. But if we make it standard, I hope it's daylight savings time. I want the longer days. Daylight savings time is not standard time. <laughs> 
And it shouldn't be standard. And I actually have saved a bunch of articles because every time the clocks change, this comes up. But the American Academy of Sleep Medicine has called to ban daylight savings time. They say evidence best supports the adoption of year-round standard time, which aligns best with human circadian rhythms and distinct benefits for public health and safety. Well, I want so Chris they, Quinn just, rhythms, and my rhythms are daylight savings time. I don't think anyone likes it to be dark at 4.30. Like, it just makes you never want to leave the house in the winter. I So I'm with Chris on this one. I like the longer evenings. I get that there are safety concerns, you know, in the morning with kids going to school when it's dark. But I feel like a lot of people in this time of year, they go to work in the dark, they come home in the dark, people have seasonal depression and anything we could do to to lighten the evenings and get people more social and outside i think it's a better i grew up on the east coast and if you went with standard yeah, time year round early. the sun would be setting at eight o'clock on summer nights which i don't think anybody on the east coast wants that whatever <laughs> well the other thing that was really i mean interesting about this is that congress has prohibited states from adopting daylight savings time. It's like, how is that a Congress well, issue? Shouldn't that be a state's rights issue? Yeah, it should be. I, no. <laughs> I lived in Indi- Indiana, um, and people were always like, what time is it there? Because it was very confusing. They never switched, except for the couple counties that are closest to Chicago. So sometimes we'd be on Eastern time, and sometimes we'd be on Central time. And it was super confusing, even if you lived there. And so I don't think that's a good idea to just be like, well, we're opting out. Like it, you have to do it with the rest of the country or else Absolutely. it doesn't make any sense. I do think we're all agreed that whatever we do, we shouldn't be changing it twice a year because that plays hell with people's health. Right. Nobody disagrees with that. You can- yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, small kids, mm-hmm. parents with small kids, it's, they, they can't get adjusted. And even though you think, oh, it's nice. I have an extra hour in the fall. Like you pay for that. <laughs> But you're, you know, you're, you're springing forward. So you're losing an hour yeah. of time for six or seven months. Or, or you're getting an extra hour of daylight at the end of the day. Just, just saying. <laughs> a, yeah. And then sending your kids to school in the dark. Okay. <laughs> we literally just got a press release sent to us by a hospital that says tips on sleep routines as clocks fall back. So even the hospitals are warning us that our health is being affected by this. And they agree that it's, like I said, sleep medicine experts say standard time is the best. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Did the people who run high school athletics in Ohio just blink? Oh, the power of Ohio House Speaker Jason Stevens. Lisa, what happened Tuesday that should make attendees of high school playoff games happy even this year? The Ohio High School Athletic Association caved to uh, political pressure, and they agreed to stop charging extra for football playoff tickets at the gate. So previously, it was $15 at the gate, but that, that will now be the same as online prices, which are $9 for students and $12 for adults. Lawmakers did approve a budget amendment earlier this year that required schools to accept cash at the gate. Um, the uh, uh, Athletic Association said, well, that increased need 
needed, you know, they needed to increase prices because they needed security and accounting, you know, for cash sales. So House Speaker Jason Stevens, he made some kind of extemporaneous remarks about the unfortunate prices of football playoff games. And that spurred two bills, one in the House and one in the Senate that would have eliminated tiered pricing for online versus gate prices. But I guess those bills are moot now. Well, the other thing it does is it has an immediate effect. The bills were not affecting this football season. Right. And now when people go this weekend, they they won't have to get gouged if they pay at the stands. Laurie, you said you heard some real grousing about this. I really did. I mean, I was working the football concession stand last Friday night. So I got in free, everybody. That was exciting. Uh, but people were saying, like, kids were coming in. They didn't have enough money. They were having to relay to people inside the gates, hey, I need more cash to get in. And parents' friends were fronting it. And people were complaining about it. It was on our community Facebook page. They thought there was some kind of corruption going on inside the Ohio High School Sports Association <laughs> that, that Matt Huffman and Jason Stevens were going to get to the bottom of. I mean, there were all these weird rumors about it, but people were really taken aback because the regular price is $8 during the regular season. And they didn't realize that, even though, you know, the schools had tried to get out the word, buy your tickets early. Yeah, this was a hardship for some people. And it's, I think... This is not just football. I know that's the big draw, but this is for the soccer tournaments. Anything that you're going into the stadium for playoffs, you are paying to the bigger organization and not just your school district. You got to give credit to Jason Stevens, the House Speaker. He he spotted this issue. He made a big thing about it. Pretty much single-handedly got it changed, and clearly he had his finger on the pulse of what people were thinking. So we we raise a lot of hell about what the legislature does wrong. Got to give Stevens some credit for doing something right. I think this might be the most popular thing he's ever done. <laughs> well, maybe he can fend off Matt Huffman's attack to replace him if he runs for the House next year. <laughs> That's his campaign slogan. Yeah. I lowered your football prices. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With six days to go to Election Day, what do we know about early voting with abortion and recreational marijuana on the ballot, Laura? It's on track to exceed the number of people who voted early in August, and that was a big number. So this is a little bit of a flip-flop from the last time we reported these numbers. So more people are turning in those ballots, going to the boards and voting early. Through October 26, that was the most recent date available, 384,768 Ohioans voted early. That was either in person or via absentee ballot. That's about 31,400 more than the same equivalent time in August. August. We've got another 250,000 ballots that are out and have not returned. And about 90% of requested absentee ballots typically are returned. So we're looking at a huge number of people voting early here. Of course, you never know if that's at the expense of people going to the polls on election day. But but this is a big turnout. And we've been covering the, the minutia and all of the angles of these two issues over and over again. And so you kind of get numb to the idea that next Tuesday is going to be a momentous day in the history of Ohio. If things go as we expect them to go, abortion will be enshrined in the Constitution. There won't be any more debate about whether or not women have a right to it. And marijuana will be legal. I mean, it just I know. I just it's not over till it's over and I just remember election night what 2016 and not going the way everybody thought it was going to go who brought their daughters to the polls and wore their white pantsuits and then we watched 
the returns come in. So it's not over till it's over it's not, at all. It's not over till it's over, but it is a huge moment. Usually these off-year elections don't mean much, but this is a big deal. It's going to change the course of this state in a in a huge way. So I, it's... But don't... Yeah. I don't want to discourage anybody from voting. Everybody should go vote because every vote counts. We don't know the, the outcome yet. But yes, the polling is showing that both these issues would pass. Um, and and we've got a lot of people voting. So voters in 73 rural counties are already casting 166,000 ballots. That's up 14% from the time in August. Urban counties are up 6%. Suburban counties are up 5%. Obviously, we don't know how those people are voting. Rural Ohioans tend to be more conservative than urban Ohioans. But we don't know who's going to the polls on Tuesday either. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Is Cuyahoga County Executive Chris Ronane already being secretive about proposals for the county courthouse and jail? This reminds me of when they put in the big bid for the Amazon headquarters and tried to keep that secret from the public. Courtney, why can't we get details about the seven proposals that have been submitted for replacing those buildings? Yeah, that seems like a good question for the county executive, absolutely, in this case, because this is such an important decision. It's about the future of Cuyahoga County's justice system, a boatload of our taxpayer dollars, and it's going to be an important choice, but right now we're kind of picking at scraps to know to know what's going on. So what we're talking about here are the proposals the county solicited this summer about what to do with the courthouse and and essentially what to do with the justice center complex, the massive you know complex on Lakeside Avenue that could potentially be good for redevelopment if the county doesn't stay there and keep its court system there. So what we do know here is that seven developers have submitted proposals. And I think kind of, at least in my mind, the headline takeaway of the names of the developers who submitted the proposals, that's really all we have here, by the way, are the names. But I, I think probably the most interesting name we saw come out yesterday was Sapphire Acquisitions. That is owned by Bedrock, the real estate company, which is owned by Cavs owner Dan Gilbert wanting to do all sorts of big redevelopment around Tower City and the landmark office building. So the fact that Dan Gilbert is putting in an idea for what to do with the courthouse, I don't know, that, that, that's pretty interesting to me. We've got the names of other developers who submitted those seven proposals. You know, I, you can check out the list on our website. A lot of them are LLCs and it sounds like conglomerations of different developers. But the substance of the proposals themselves it sounds like we'll have to wait and see what's in there and, and what the ideas are. Yeah, and, and which is not the way this should go. This should be transparent. It's the biggest issue facing the county. It requires a huge amount of spending. I And I felt like from the beginning, the fix was in for, for Dan Gilbert's company that they want to put the courthouse in the Sherwin-Williams building and redevelop the courthouse jail site for whatever, thinking they can get money out of it. And I'm not the only one that thinks that. And if you want to disabuse people of the idea that a fix was in from the start, you should operate completely in the sunlight. Even if you have technical exemptions to the records law you can cite, you shouldn't. You should do the right thing and make this a completely transparent process. I'm kind of stunned that he's not, but there's, you know, we've talked about how they haven't been easy to deal with when it comes to transparency. We're going to have watchdog eyes on this. This is going to have to be a fair process 
Um, and it would be a lot easier to convince the voters that it is if you were being transparent. Remember, they're going to have to convince people to pay for all this stuff. You know, if they raise the the sales tax, even though he campaigned that he wouldn't do that without a vote of the people, um, people are going to be mad, especially if they feel like this isn't being done fairly. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to still see come out of this process. Right. And like you said, there is that exemption in the law, but Ronan doesn't have to use that exemption. Uh, I'm not I, I'm not sure there's an exemption in the law. They, they, I mean, if if the people bidding are, are saying we have our own real estate that will make part of the mix, maybe. But when you say this is what we would do with your site, the publicly owned sites, that's that, that there should be no exemption from that. We own that stuff. This is what they want to do with it. This is how they want to develop it. There, that should be absolutely in the public eye. And the fact that it's not is a very bad sign. And it's also, you know, Chris Renane hasn't even been in office for a year. And already we're, we're going down this road. Feels like everything old is new again. Same as the old boss. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Fund for Our Economic Future launched a fun online tool Tuesday to help employers decide where to move in our region. Lisa, what does that tool do? Yeah, it's called wherematters.us. That's the website address. It allows employers to enter an address and get all sorts of demographic information around that address, like, you know, the age group of the people living there, the commute times to and from, the transit times. And then they broke it, and you can break this data down by any number of parameters. You can um, take types of commutes. Those are broken down by race, and that's to help achieve the goal of an equitable economy. It also generates generates a score for the emissions footprint of that area and the property they're looking at, and they can compare different sites through this tool. So Fun for Our Economic Future President Becky Burke says the information was not previously readily available or all collated together. She says it helps corporate leaders make informed decisions on where they want to locate in Northeast Ohio. And they, she says that businesses are actually committing to sustainability and strategic decisions that actually benefit the community around them. So location really does matter. Well, and we've talked about how central Ohio is attracting an outsized portion of new employers. Anything Northeast Ohio can do to compete makes good sense. And this is very well done. It's very accessible, very simple to use, very simple to read. So credit to them for putting it together. I'm sure that employers looking to move here, why wouldn't they use it? It's so simple to operate. I guess my concern is, is that if they punch in, you know, certain addresses, they're going to find out how many brown fields are around, <laughs> which we have a lot of those that we need to get rid of. Yeah, but maybe you see a brown field you like, and then you get the brown field money to clean it up so that you can move in. Um, it's, it, I just think it's better to have that stuff available so that they can mm -hmm. use it. I mean, some of it, I, I, I was a little bit hard to understand. I where it, where it's tell, talking about the emissions that come from your your area. There's no comparison. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to click on a bunch of other addresses to see, mm -hmm. well, how does that fit into the rest of the county? And it would be nice if it had some kind of comparison number, what the average numbers are. But it's a good start. You're listening to Today in Ohio. In the days after Hamas invaded Israel and killed and injured many hundreds of civilians, many local politicians issued statements to stand with Israel. Now that Israel has gone into the Gaza Strip to stamp out Hamas, killing many civilians in the process, 
What are supporters of the Palestinian cause telling local elected leaders? Courtney, you had a front row seat to this on Monday night. Yeah, there was a a big gathering at Cleveland City Council's Monday night meeting. The chambers down at City Hall were, the benches were just packed. It was quite a showing of support. Folks were lined up waiting to get into the building. And what I saw was, you know, there were about 200, by my count, Palestine supporters who had taken to city council's meeting to really, you know, criticize local leaders here about those comments in the days after Hamas's initial attack. So, you know, we heard a comment from Mayor Justin Bibb after that attack on that day. We heard a comment from Blaine Griffin, the council president on that day, you know, out of concern for for what had happened in Israel and and the the folks that supported Palestine who came down to the meeting on Monday were really calling on officials to to walk back those statements they were calling on officials to stand up for Palestine as the death toll mounts there you know and and it was it was quite a demonstration everyone in the crowd had pieces of paper they said bore the names of Palestinian children who have been killed over the last few weeks by Israel. So they were making a statement that, you know, local leaders, where's your where's your voice of support for for these losses too? And and you know, at one point one one public speaker who got up to talk called on council to introduce a resolution in defense of the Palestinians and there were different chants throughout the night. At one point, you know, accusing Bibb of supporting genocide for his initial, you know, statement of support for Israel. So emotions were high. You could definitely feel the pain that was in that room. And it felt like it was a community coming out using what council calls the people's house to make a statement. Yeah, I do think what happened with Hamas to Israel in those early days the world stood with Israel because that was just an unjustifiable invasion and attack on non-combatants. And if, if, imagine if there was some sect in Laura's beloved Canada that came across the U.S. border and and killed a bunch of people and 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 you know without without any justification whatsoever, people would be hugely outraged. And so when Bibb stood with Israel, that's what he's saying: is Hey, that's completely wrong. That shouldn't have happened. So to ask him to walk back his comments is strange. On the other hand, what's happening now is horrible. Lots of civilians are being killed. And so for them to go in and say, hey, where's your sympathy for civilians being killed on the other side of the line? It's a good question. And you would think that if they were quick to make the statements in the early days, they would say something today about we need we need to get back to peace. Civilians should not be getting killed. Yeah, and and that felt clearly conveyed, you know, drawing attention to all the the Palestinian children that have been killed. You know, the death toll in Palestine is far, far greater now than than what it is in Israel. And it felt like the people were, you know, crying out for their elected leaders to hear them. I was stunned in your story where Blaine Griffin is chiding people for interrupting the meeting. You know, was there any chiding of people for interrupting meetings after the Floyd murder? I, I mean, I, it's just, it's the people's house. People are going to yell. They're going to hoot and holler. That's what they do there. And to chide them for interrupting the flow of the meeting just seemed way tone deaf. Yeah. You know, Griffin even said, I talked to him after the meeting, he said that, 
you know, he's going to go back and, and look at council's rules. There's kind of been some talk and movement of that already, but he said he's going to go back and, and look at the rules to see if they, you know, potentially need change to crack down on on this breaking of the rules. You know, people were chanting over council members as, as they had their time to stand up at the end and kind of make their statements, which is a normal part of the meeting. They were also holding up like I said, the signs of the names of Palestinian kids who have been killed and you're not supposed to have signs in council chambers. So Griffin, you know, it sounds like he's interested in, you know, tightening things up there. We'll see what those changes, if any are, he also didn't rule out, you know, passing a resolution here, but the rules part of this, I'm curious to see where that goes. He he should take a page from Kevin Kelly because Kevin Kelly, when these kind of protests went on, when he was president, sat there and and let it go because it's a vent. This is, this is the way people express their feelings and to try and clamp down on that, that just pens, pens up that pressure. For what I'm surprised to see it. I would have thought he was smarter than that. For, for what it's worth, you know, he also said he didn't, he didn't, he was concerned about the rules because he didn't want other public speakers who come down to use that same opportunity to address, you know, the public in the, in the people's house. Uh, he didn't want other folks to feel uncomfortable. And, you know, a council staffer conveyed to me that at another recent meeting, w- what sounded to be either like a pro-peace or a pro-Israel supporter uh, w- was shouted down. So, so, you know, he was kind of pointing to that. He doesn't want anyone to be able feel uncomfortable. Intimidated. Yeah. Well, that that's a good motive. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Laura, this one doesn't make any sense to me. What is the idea behind Verbena in Hingetown, a bar that doesn't sell alcohol? I had never heard the term sober curious before I read Alex Darris's story. Had, had anybody else? No. Because that no. was news to me. Okay. So this is a free spirited bar in Ohio City, and that means no alcohol. And this is a trend that we've talked about before in regards to marijuana, really, that there's a study that found that 34% of Americans in general plan on drinking less in 2023. And people who have cut back on alcohol might want somewhere to go out that doesn't include alcohol, but it still feels like a going out place. So that's what Verbena is. And it has all sorts of interesting drinks that you can have that don't have alcohol. And that could be like a non-alcoholic beer or wine, which honestly, I can't... I. I'm not a beer fan, so I can't imagine people drinking that, but lots of people do, Um, or just mixed drinks that don't have alcohol in it. And I actually then this weekend was reading my Midwest Living magazine, and there was a whole spread on this trend of non-alcoholic drinks that taste like alcohol. I'm thrown by this because my feeling is if you want to get together with people at a place that doesn't serve alcohol, it's a coffee shop and a bunch of other places. I also would think that if you are trying not to drink alcohol, you're an alcoholic or, or whatever, that going into a bar that doesn't sell alcohol might be a trigger that makes you want to have the drink. And I, I just, I, this one threw me, apparently there's a, a need for it. They're, they're, they wouldn't open it if they didn't think there was a demand for it. I just would not have thought there would be. Yeah. Just like the counterpoint to Chris, I, you know, especially post COVID, I think it's worth noting there aren't a lot of places that are open later in the day, like coffee shops anymore. The hours in Cleveland have really, it feels like scaled back in the last few years. And perhaps that that's part of what's driving this. Is that right? The coffee shops close mid afternoon. Yeah. I mean, the the one in probably don't stay open until 10 or 11 p.m. 
Right. There, the and, and just general places to go seems to have, have dried up in the later evening hours in recent years. Interesting. Okay. Well, there you go. Verbena. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That closes out the Wednesday discussion. Thanks, Lisa, Courtney, and Laura. Thank you for listening. Come on back Thursday for another conversation about the news. Mm-hmm.